Welcome to OCG Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show... Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. All right. Mr. Producer, are our technical difficulties solved? I believe so. (laughs) I believe we're good. Okay, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. Uh, This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer and co-host, engineer and problem solver. (laughs) Chris Morales in the house. In the building. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call and speak to us. Uh, If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our show website, and that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. And you can also listen to the show via our call in line. If that's your only means, and by all means, make it happen. Make it happen. All right, recap. Um, so our last show was on the 29th, I believe. 29th of. Sounds well. Yeah, that sounds it? about right. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Okay. That sounds about right. Um. Well, let's let's first get discipline. Oh, Twenty six. All right, twenty six. Let's first get our disciplinary action out the way. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Hit her with it. So la- last week, uh, our our music director, my daughter, uh, was supposed to load up certain songs that we were going to play in honor of Prince, which we did. However, uh, two of them were mislabeled. so what we thought we were getting was what we didn't get yeah so um she's been fired uh and then i immediately suspended her firing so she's under suspended sentence there you go right now uh on probationary period so depending on how this show goes and it did not start off well (laughs) (laughs) that's that's right we'll determine whether or not her firing will just be upheld and we'll just move on Cold business, the radio business. And, you know, we got a standard we're trying to uphold, and so we have to hold ourselves to the standard. To such a standard, okay. Okay. Of course. 
Um, other than that, we had a, a one of the things we like to do every now and then is uh, have a guest on. Last show, we had a guest on, Neil Krosky. That's who's right. The first director of the Daytop Adult Facility in California. And that was a, a nice treat, I think. We're also, again, uh, this is our second time uh, streaming live into our residential program. We want to see how that goes. Yeah. We did have a hiccup last week. Uh, um, uh, on post show <laughs> on the post show report right right uh technical hiccup so we're going to see how that works this week uh hopefully it's smooth sailing because again we don't want to have to you know fire people you know from their roles and responsibilities of course okay it's never it's, what you want to do the, again it's the standards pride and quality p and q that's that right trying to uphold. that's right that's all i got on the recap perfect <laughs> Already had it queued up. That's right. So I think I, uh, you called it, my friend. I called it. Ezekiel Elliott. You called it exactly as it happened. Now I sent you a, uh, a YouTube link. You did. Of what my, uh, alleged reaction was when they made the pick. (laughs) Yes. And for our New York contingent, it was, uh, similar to, for those of you who are old enough, the lottery. <laughs> uh, similar to 1985, when the NBA went to a draft lottery, and the New York Knicks won the draft lottery, and they showed a picture of the then general manager Dave DeBusher, former New York Knick star of mm-hmm. the 70s. Uh, his facial expressions as they were <laughs> counting down the draw, seven, six, yeah. five, four, and then when they realized that they won the top pick, which was Patrick Ewing from Georgetown, uh, that was my reaction when the uh, Cowboys got Ezekiel Elliott. That's right. So my wife has only heard me uh, scream or exclamate <laughs> in the house regarding sports on two or three occasions. Sure. You know what I mean? So... Uh, and they're decades apart. And this marked one of them. This was one of them. And your pick, sir? Uh, well, they uh, I called exactly opposite of what would happen. I said that they would trade down to perhaps trade out of the first round and accumulate picks, and indeed they did the opposite and traded up, take two first-round picks. Mm. Uh, neither of them the quote-unquote sexy picks, if you will, Mm -hmm. a defensive lineman and an offensive lineman. But I will have all you loyal 49ers fans remember, in the draft that we had two first-round picks about four years ago, we took Mike Upati and Anthony Davis, both linemen no one had ever heard of, Mm -hmm. and it transformed the organization for the four or five years that we had them. Mm -hmm. you got to build through the trenches. So although they might not be household names, you hope that if you if you hit on them and they can stay healthy and produce at the rate they did in college, that you'll be back to building something solid. Well, we'll see if that happens with white chocolate chip. 
Kelly, <laughs> the head we, coach. We will see. All right. Anything else on NFL? Uh, I think that's it on the NFL front. For those of you who care, and this is a slight deviation from the NFL front, mm-hmm. a Stephen Curry today was named the first ever in NBA history unanimous MVP. First game back from a knee injury last night. Sets an NBA record for most points in an overtime period. Completely took it over. And who would think 40 points, 9 assists, 8 rebounds in a, in a comeback after not having played in three weeks. Ah, right. This Unanimous. Is not, this is not ESPN with, well all, with, done. All, the, with all the stats. <laughs> well done. And, and for the sake of this radio show, his name is Staff Infection Curry. <laughs> and that he does give to people. He might as well. Okay. I have a problem with him being the first. Uh, the first ever unanimous? Yes, considering those who've come before him. Yeah, well. So I was surprised to hear that. There has to be All a right. first, and 131 sports minds agree. Okay. All right. Are we done with our NFL? We are done, sir. So pretty soon, I presume, as we move into the NBA do we want to start in the NBA Finals or do we want to NBA Conference Finals before we talk NBA? Conference Finals, I guess. All right, we'll wait for the Conference Finals. Yeah. All right. Okay, our topic today is a taboo. <laughs> it's an uncomfortable one. A taboo one. Um, but it's one that uh, must be spoken about on occasion. Yes, um, And I want to preface us getting into this topic with these comments. The purpose of us, of, of us talking about this topic is not for people working in the field, clients in recovery, etc., or et al, E-T space A-L, et al, right, which means everybody else, um, to used for any nefarious reasons. Correct. Our goal is to talk about how this impacts the client. Right. Because ultimately everything comes back to the client and the client's well-being. So the title of our topic is when the counselor becomes a part of the problem. Hold your breath. Okay. So I want to start off with uh, as I wrote in my show description, talking about the Daytop Staff Training Program, which was an outstanding program. And as a matter of fact, I think anyone who went through the program, finished the program successfully, um, would say that it was probably before its time. Hmm. Uh, it was intellectually rigorous. You had to master the various components of the concept before you can even step foot on the floor to uh, practice and uh, be constructively critiqued and all of that stuff. You had to prove that you had an intellectual mastery first. Sure. Okay. Then you'd be judged on your, your presentation, your body language and tone and all of that stuff to see if it was up to snuff. But uh, to me, at least my experience uh, as a participant and then as a person on the outside of the training looking in at those being trained and participating in a small way, training others, 
um, that wasn't even the most important aspect of the training, the intellectual aspect, learning the concept, theories, and all that stuff. It was the emotional and mental boot camp Mm -hmm. that you had to go through. And how this ties into our topic is that it was never stated, well, maybe it was stated in a way, but I don't think it's commonly stated in academia or other training areas, okay, for this field, that part of the goal is to weed people out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And that was part of their goal, not only to teach, but to also weed people out. And I thought that that was uh, extremely important because an unhealthy person, that's broad context, Mm -hmm. I use that word, cannot help another unhealthy person. All you're going to end up with is (laughs) part of what we're going to talk about today. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. So uh, they they made a sincere effort to weed people out who either weren't ready um, and had other – either their motives were not correct and or they had things they needed to flush out and work on before you moved into the arena of helping others. And it's part of the reason why in almost – Every class, at least during my time, the, the four, four years or whatever, that, you know, the classes would start out in the mid to high teens. Mine had 20. But when it was Finish all said and done, you know, low you number. end up with four, five, six. You know what I mean? Mine ended up with just three. Yeah. So they went through 17 people when it, before it was all said and done. And that's just in six months. You know what I'm saying? Serious. So, yeah. I think it's important. I actually, I was jotting down a couple things that came to my mind as you were saying this, and I'm sure these are all things that will come up in the context of what we're about to speak about. But in order to be effective in the field, in the role that you play as a counselor, self-awareness is huge. Because if you're not, if you're not aware of you know, maybe your own issues, um, your own attitude, your own disposition, your own outlook toward things, personal opinions versus what the organization that you're working for is, you know, the foundation of the organization that you're working for, then you begin to act out of your own self-interest, mm-hmm. consciously or self-consciously or subconsciously. And that, like you said, if the client is the focus, which the client is the focus, that can have a huge impact detrimental Mm -hmm. to the client in question, the client that you're trying to help. So being aware of yourself and what you bring to the table as well as other things that maybe impact your points of view, um, you need to be cognizant of them Mm -hmm. so you can be mindful when you're having an interaction with a client because as a counselor, you really are in almost more so than in other fields like you know, a manager or a vice president or something mm-hmm. in other fields as a counselor, when you're working with clients who are becoming vulnerable in situations like this, you have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. You're in a position with a ton of power. And like, mm-hmm. it's probably more so than some higher ups in other fields. Mm-hmm. And if that power isn't channeled and used appropriately, you can do 
a ton of damage, right. a ton of damage. And so, it you know, it's hard to talk about, obviously. The show might take some twists and turns where it's hard to give opinions, but it does need to be spoken about. It might get thrown off the air. might get thrown <laughs> off the air. Who knows? But but with that power com- comes, um, you know, a lot of responsibility and a privilege as well to be in the, to play that role in somebody else's life. And so it's not to be taken lightly. And just to define that power a little bit, it's not only just the authority figure, but also the power in terms of the information that you possess right. that you're going to be uh, transferring of course. Um, to clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and information can be used as a weapon. It certainly, um, and it is, can be. Either is. through being withheld or, or being uh, providing misinformation, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things that was stressed is <clears throat> we, as a lot of times when we're addressing the family, we're standing in front of the family is we, and, and this goes way back. The family is usually facing the philosophy, different philosophies, and we're standing in front of them. So our back is to the, to the philosophies. Okay. And, Oftentimes, depending on what the reason is we're standing in front of the family is, we're being, you know, buttressed by these words that are on the wall. Honesty, trust, trust in your environment, uh, to be aware, to be alive, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So whatever it is that you're saying while you're standing in front of the family with these things as the backdrop, okay, what was stressed, at least in my training class, was that you have to work to make sure that you are above reproach. No fingers can be pointed. And I'm not talking about human, you know, normal human failures. You know, right, I'm talking right, about right. within the context of the work that we're doing. Okay. Um, if you start to be questioned... Not just by one, even though if, if one questions, that's enough. But if there if there is a a, a groundswell of questioning of whether or not you are actually walking the walk, walking the talk, I should say, um, your effectiveness is slowly seeping out through the draft, <laughs> right? <laughs> the, the you know the crack in the window. Yeah. Okay. So we kind of. Uh, jotted down a couple of categories that we're going to talk about this topic in. And some of them are pretty general and vague, so we're going to have some subtopics. So let's start with, we're going to leave probably the most obvious one for last, okay? Sure. But we'll start out with a biggie, which is a, a very big one in this field, which is boundary violations. Yeah, okay. Okay, violating the bound, you know, the professional boundary vi- line of counselor to client, mm-hmm. Okay. So what are some of the different, and that's a huge one. I mean, and one it's extreme yeah, to the other of right. the things that could be boundary violations. So uh, I'm going to start out with an extreme one. Um, having intimate relationships with okay. clients. Um, and when I say intimate, I don't, I mean physical and non-physical. Right. Okay. Inappropriate conversations. Okay. What else? 
Oh, well, besides the, well, this kind of ties into intimate relationships, mm-hmm. but we live in an era where social media reigns supreme, mm-hmm. and there can be a lot of crisscrossing from professional to personal in that kind of context. For example, if there is a client who has a Facebook account and a staff member who has a Facebook account and they connect or link on Facebook Mm -hmm. via being friends and now a client has access to see what is happening in a staff member's personal life or vice versa, in fact, Um, that can also be a big kind of problem when it comes to boundaries, especially professional boundaries, because there's information out there that you wouldn't normally share Mm -hmm. with a client. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big one as well. I think we, let's see, we added that in the mid... The, oh, we added it to the Hakoda uh, ethics? The mid-aughts, mid-2000s. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, one of the things on our, in our code of ethics, we say not to enter into inappropriate relationships, sexual or otherwise, with clients or members of client families. Um, and we we attach a time frame, which I'm not going to state because uh, yeah, well, that just has to do with like California law or yeah. something like that. Um, but most licensing boards, it's there's no, it's like forever. Yeah, you know, the, time, um, the timeline it's, it's, it's is inappropriate. Right. Um, so so to keep the conversation factual and real, uh, more often than not. Way more often than not, when this particular behavior is male staff, female client, mm-hmm. female clients come in very vulnerable. Um, and I'm just talking historically. Okay. Um, now I know we're in a, we are in a different time now, where uh, the women are catching up. I'm not talking about this field. I'm just talking about in society in terms sure, of sure. inappropriate behavior. You know, teachers and 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 and, oh, and, yeah, and, yeah, and whatnot. Sure. So, the, the 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 profile is now changing, and it's now becoming either or. Mm-hmm. You know, where you know, whereas you know, years ago it was just, you know, it was watch the guys, watch the guys, <laughs> watch the guys, <laughs> right. watch the males, and and we would counsel, train, and advise male staff, you know, accordingly. You know, sure. like so, so that you don't set yourself up, um, you know. By you know by accident or unintentionally, you know? right, right. So we put things in place to make sure you protect yourselves. And now that's kind of like just blown out of the water because it just applies across the board to male and females. Right. Okay. Um, let's see what else under boundaries, uh, gifts and gratuities. Now this this was more of <laughs> we we experienced this, uh, but it was more of an issue on the adolescent side. Yes. And you could tell a little story, and I got one. Go ahead. Yes, uh, there was a time when uh, the uh, a select group of the female adolescent clients that we have would do the vast majority of their treatment <clears throat> in a separate, like, physical plant, mm-hmm. so to speak. And so we would have a staff member assigned solely to that physical plant to run treatment for the uh, female adolescents on any given shift. You could say facility. They don't, I don't think anyone knows what physical plant uh, means. Facility. <laughs> facility. And um, it's it's safe to say, and I'll put it mildly, that 
these particular female adolescents were quite a handful. And so <clears throat> there would be staff members from time to time who might be less than looking forward to coming into their shift, especially if something had happened the night before or they could anticipate the storm coming, so to speak. And so to launch a preemptive strike, we would have particular staff members maybe bring in a bag of candies or chips or snacks or a movie that they could watch mm -hmm. to instantly tame the herd, if you will. You know, I come bearing gifts, mm -hmm. so let's all... And um, while I can understand why that would be the approach, because they could be incredibly challenging to work with, it also created a dynamic where now the next staff member coming mm -hmm. on shift, because we're a 24-hour facility, if that next staff member came on shift and didn't have anything to present, any gifts or treats or whatever the case may be, it created a... Um, a conflict with the staff where we would have one staff who was the quote unquote favorite or when is this person working mm -hmm. in and I don't like it when you work. And so it creates a dynamic where not everybody is on the same playing field right. in regards to the staff team. Um, and, and so that again, although it may sound minor and the reasoning behind it sounds just, it's a boundary violation because we're not, we're not coming to work to give clients personal gifts to begin with, and we all need to operate as one team and, and function as one unit. And when a dissension is created in the staff because one staff member is doing things that they shouldn't be, it creates a problem that is transferred over to the clients mm -hmm. because now the clients are kind of missing out on what treatment really is if they're now their focus is on what are we going to get yeah. or what is the staff <clears throat> member bringing and we completely lose sight of the structure and why we're here in the first place and that's how it can have an impact back on the clients even though they may not realize it at the time well as a man who has raised only daughters <laughs> you got to come home with candy sometimes no no <laughs> I wasn't setting myself up for that. I, I I knew exactly what I was doing. I was thinking of the future. Yeah, good. So the groundwork was being laid from a very from toddler age towards the ultimate goal, knowing that at some point they were going to turn to teenagers, and there was going to be friction. Okay, but if <laughs> you lay that groundwork, you know there's not as much friction. But uh, understanding, you know, the population of the girls that we were dealing with, young young ladies. Um, I don't know how we have our senses about us, to be honest, after 26 <laughs> years of that. But right. suffice it to say, uh, you do, as a client, you do get, they, I mean, the adolescents don't know this, but they do get cheated out of the therapeutic experience when, right. when they're being given gifts that they don't earn, and it's not given to the family, but to individuals and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. I want to go back to the other, the first thing that we named when we talked about intimate relationships, and we talked, we said about how, you know, mostly years ago it was predominantly male staff that would right um, prey on vulnerable female clients, and the devastation that that would have because whenever something, and this is historical has not been empirically studied. This is just my own uh, look back. Sure. Okay. Whenever something went down in the facility that involved a male and female, whether it was client or staff, et cetera, et cetera, that, wasn't, that should not have happened, okay, 
90% of the time, okay, well, of course the staff would be gone, but let's say if it was a male client, it's the, 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 the one we would lose more often than not would be the female. Sure, sure. You know what I'm saying? And so when you look at that, so now the female's treatment experience has been, an opportunity has been ruined. You have now added on top of that additional trauma, okay? It's more likely than not that she's going back out to get back in the life, mm-hmm. okay? And what's that going to mean? What's, what's in the future you know what's what lies ahead for her in, in in that regard, so it's an extremely selfish act, right? Okay, um, so we had to be very hawkish, if you will. I don't know what other word to use to be very careful in terms of our hiring process and so on. Even you know, at the adolescent facility and the adult facility, right? Okay, uh, of who you're hiring and and so on and so forth. And I think it's safe to say now we don't have an adolescent program anymore, so I can just say it. It got to the point where I remember we stopped hiring people. Right. Because it just became – no matter people going through FBI background clearances, Depart- California Department of mm-hmm. Justice background mm-hmm. clearances, child abuse index clearances, and the whole nine yards, people were still doing things violating boundaries. And stuff that even didn't even make common sense. So it, was, it became very frustrating. It was indeed. Um, <clears throat> treating clients differently, another quote-unquote category. So as a counselor, as a human being, okay, first, counselor second, okay, it is expected, it is known that you are not going to vibe and, and have a strong liking to every single client that comes into your world. Right. It's un- unrealistic. However, no client should ever know that. They should never be able to tell from your body language, from words that come out your mouth, and from your tone. One pet peeve of mine has always been when a counselor in the professional in the professional sense uh, in our modality, which we call the TC, you know, we deal with behavior, right? We deal with negative behavior when the counselor personalizes it. Mm-hmm. So if someone does something in the facility or outside the facility, whatever, And their manner of how they deal with the client echoes like a like they've been personally affronted, and like you you know you did something to me, and you know and um you know I'm mad at you because of what you did, and and that should never come across like it's like I'm taking it personal. We deal with the behavior while simultaneously trying to support the person, mm-hmm. okay? So if the client picks up that, well, you know, wait a second, do you, you know, do you have something against me? I mean, because you're kind of reacting like I did something personally to you versus I went out and relapsed or, you know, I went out and, you know, 
did something. I, sh- I deviated on my appointment or whatever the case may be. Right. Um, you're acting like I personally, you know, stole from you or something. Right, right, right. Um, so we have to, if a client has that impression, and then they see how maybe others are treated, okay, you've now set up a dynamic of uh, look how this person is being treated, look how I'm being treated, and so on and so forth. And what makes it difficult is when you have a large staff team. That makes sense. It's hard to corral yeah. everybody onto the, Get same, on the same page. Same page. Right. Um, and every, like I, I started out by saying, we're all humans first, okay, counselors second. And so we first got to deal with our own human uh, issues that may arise and then deal with it from a counseling perspective takes me back to why the training program was so outstanding because they dealt with the human yeah yeah know, that makes sense what you, what, whatever it is what you brought as an individual to the table that needed to be smoothed out rounded out purged out whatever it may be that was dealt with it wasn't just an academic um exercise yeah yeah it wasn't just to learn techniques, so to speak, yeah. or uh, certain approaches, what to do in this situation, but to work through who you were as an individual mm-hmm. and, and how that would impact your ability to perform mm-hmm. on the floor mm-hmm. in any given situation with any given client versus you know knowing the ABC procedure if you know there's a fire in the facility or two clients are getting aggressive in group and what to do situationally. It wasn't as pragmatic as Mm -hmm. that. It was like you're looking at the whole individual and Mm -hmm. everything that contributes to this individual's being and how that's going to manifest itself on the floor. And it's probably not as uh, big as an issue when you're working with adults, but when you're working with, when we're working with kids, they kind of are more sensitive to how you're treating them. Um, in comparison to their peers, no, you know, similar to like siblings, you know, noticing how different the parents may treat one versus the other. They're a lot more sensitive to that. So <clears throat> it's just being aware of it. The the impact if someone feels that they're being treated differently versus someone else, if it's real, we, one of the things we want to source out is whether or not it's real or not. If it's not real, then that becomes a TC, TC issue for the family to deal with. So, so we do whatever we can to, as human beings, to treat people the same respond the same, present a unified, as much as we can as humans, unified body language. Okay? And then deal with, if someone does feel that, hey, I I don't feel I'm being treated fairly, in comparison, that's the caveat, in comparison to someone else who might have engaged in the same thing or said the same thing, whatever the case may be, you reacted this way, and then when so-and-so did that same thing, you reacted that way. Why the difference? 
we don't want to – I don't want to say we don't want to give ammunition, but if you can avoid having unnecessary things enter the environment, mm-hmm. you do the best you can to mm-hmm. eliminate it or not have it happen. All right, let's have a uh, – we've got a question on the floor. We've got a comment on the floor. Looks like we do, okay. indeed, coming from the East Coast. Okay. Hello, Ms. Jackson. You have a comment on the floor. Welcome. Oh, hi. How are you? Good. That's good. Okay. Um, as you know, I went through Daytop. Yes. Graduate and also a counselor. I went through Parksville. Mm-hmm. And um, I am so grateful that I had excellent counselors in Parksville. I mean, these counselors not only talk to talk, they walk to walk. They nurtured me, and believe it or not, I was the oldest one in the house, but I was mm-hmm. treated like everybody else. And it was so good. What I did was I took a piece of every one of them to rebuild who I wanted to be because I wanted to be so much like them. Mm-hmm. They were my role models. They were so, you know, I know nobody's perfect. Like you said, everybody's human. But on a counseling level, they counseled us. I also was in that program and the panicium where you go and you do the training to be a counselor. Mm-hmm. And that was powerful, too. Yep. The basic thing that we learned was about, like you all said, ourselves. I had to get rid of my own personal problems in order to be able to counsel somebody else. Mm-hmm. That was the biggest thing of going up there, is to get rid of all of your trash in order to help somebody else. Exactly. When I did finally become a counselor, I got into the counseling training program, and I had a client. And me and this client, we laugh about it today. He couldn't even ride the train with me. Boundaries. (laughs) Boundaries. He went back and he told um, Wilbur Powell, that I had messed for him. And Wilbur said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, oh, she thinks she's too good to ride the train with me. And Wilbur <laughs> said, well, when you become a counselor, you'll understand why you couldn't ride that train with her. But the whole thing was I learned about boundaries. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of counselors don't work on themselves, don't realize, as the host said, the impact that you can have on a client. Mm-hmm. We come into treatment, we already broke down. We gained 10 pounds, as you said before, not directly. Gained 10 pounds, you think you're looking good. The male counselor is treating you all right. First thing you do is fall in love. Mm. <laughs> but what happens is, then the counselor steps up and he lets you know for a fact, you don't love me. You love the way I'm being, I'm treating you with respect. Mm -hmm. He breaks it down to you and Mm -hmm. lets you know why you're behaving this way. And we need more of those training programs wherein a counselor will understand you can have, you can break that girl down. You can make her feel like nothing. My whole thing, Alan Benjamin was my counselor. Mm Mm-hmm. And from being abused at five years old up until 46 years old when I went into treatment, 
It was my secret. I didn't even tell Alan. Mm-hmm. But what I realized was that Alan Benjamin was the only man that ever took care of me and they never wanted nothing from me. Mm-hmm. That's being wow. a real that's being a real counselor. Right. I'm covered in talking about how women, you know, haven't you been on your knees long enough? But they don't do that no more. No, they want you to take care of them now when you go on treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's sad. It's really sad. But I also just want to say it's so good talking to you all. And you, you and the host said a lot of powerful things. This is a great topic. And I thank you so much for doing it. You're very welcome. Thank you. You're such a gentleman. Bye. All right. right. Thank you. Great call. Great call. Indeed. Good to hear from somebody who went through it themselves. Yep. Um, I'm going to move to... She she actually preempted us on our third category, which was unaddressed personal issues. Perfect segue. (laughs) Uh, Which was, you you know, my whole point about the uh why the training program was so outstanding is that as she stated they did not want you entering become you know you know stepping off the quote-unquote assembly line ready Mm -hmm. to counsel others when you still had your own personal issues that you had to deal with that's right uh from minor to extreme whatever they may be like we said one unhealthy person cannot help another unhealthy person and you know i i don't no, out of the let's say just in my class out of the 17 who did not make it how much of it was you know i don't want to do this i realize i don't want to do this versus you know it had come to the fore that they had issues that needed to be resolved before they could continue etc cetera, etc cetera. sure but uh and i want to be careful with how i word this it is inappropriate and unacceptable for any counselor to not take care of the, their their personal issues. Mm-hmm. There is no way that you can walk into a facility and work with other human beings, and if your personal issues are so negatively strong that it's not going to leak out in some way, shape, or form onto the people you're trying to help. And so I don't care if it's mental health, and that's broad, okay? I'm not saying you're schizophrenic or anything, but you, you could be depressed over something, okay? Something, an event that's occurred in your life and so on and so forth. And if you're going through that, are you going to be helpful to another person, to a client? Yeah. Um, so it could, whatever it could be a range of, of personal issues, whatever they may be. So one of the things we we have in our code of ethics, and we say, let me see, where do we have it? Seek appropriate professional assistance for their personal problems or conflicts that are likely to impair their work performance or their clinical judgment. Because we certainly don't want people to be coming on site um, with sig- – and I'm not talking about everyday stuff that we all you – Yeah, know. the human part of it. Yeah. Right. I mean, 
when the Yankees don't make the playoffs, you know, I got a problem. <laughs> yeah, you're coming in looking like you're I having a, a bad yeah, day. I got a problem. Um, but I'm, I'm talking about serious stuff um, that in, would impact any human being and their ability to focus on another person. Right. Because right. internally you're thinking about what's going on in your life, so you really can't focus, even though you might try and fake it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Um, but you're actually not really present, so right. to speak. And by the way, there there's a uh, another aspect to this which I want to make clear because it's been a long-term thing practice, which is not a bad thing. There are times when counselors need the environment and they've shown up on their days off. Mm, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, because the therapeutic environment kind of provides some uh, indirect healing, if you Sure. Will. Yeah, no, it okay. makes a lot of sense. And can I leave it at that? Sure. Yeah. I know sometimes people uh, show up on holidays um, show up when, for a dinner, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Um, that that's the beauty of the therapeutic environment. Mm-hmm. It, it just as on a human level, you don't have to be a client to experience healing in the environment. Right is what I'm saying. Oh no! Yeah, so, no, and even to go a step further than an employee of the organization maybe who's not working at that moment, you get the same feedback from people with no direct affiliation with the organization, meaning they don't work for the organization or they're not a part of or once were a part of it. But even guests, visitors, mm-hmm. family members, yeah. family members, people who have come, you know, who come for one or two hours a week or come to a little family potluck on a holiday or something like that, even they have expressed or stated feeling a certain way when, when they're in this kind of an environment mm-hmm. and everybody is very thoughtful and, you know, every, everybody's being very welcoming and just the how the community feels mm-hmm. what when they're interacting with it. I mean, we get that feedback from, from everybody. Yep. Tour, when you give tours, people from the county, mm-hmm. they will express... The same thing. If they join the clients, just join them for lunch. They get that full kind of experience, and it feels a certain a certain way that it's almost hard to describe in words, but safe and calming. And it definitely has an effect and an impact on mm-hmm. people. But the one thing I do want to challenge uh, our caller, uh, Miss Jackson, on is uh, she referred to both of us as I think she said very nice gentlemen. Yes. Um, and. But I, I, I take issue with that, especially with you, Mr. Producer, because you've made comments on this show, which I think uh, the women can take issue with. Um, Here we go. different so in this context see. for a female client mm-hmm. because, again, and I'm speaking generally, but for the most part, females are very uh, in touch terrible. with their emotions. In fact, they usually lead with their emotions. And so I may <laughs> want to speak to a female resident about that bridge that we spoke about. Mm-hmm. God, I'm going to get in trouble tonight. <laughs> but that uh, where we we have an emotion, we're overwhelmed with an emotion, 
and we have like a bridge. So that that's the sort of thing ain't my bank, baby. <laughs> but it doesn't stop there, folks. I mean, here's another comment from. I mean, everything that comes out of their mouth is just uh, uh, feelings, but they can't bring thought into it to help control their actions. Sounds like you're describing men versus women. <laughs> I just I, I want to interrupt this message for an important announcement that did not come from me. <laughs> what do you mean I'm not an expert? It's a very general opinion. That's all taken out of context right there. That's unfair to paint me in such a light. <laughs> so what we've saved for last I called it the obvious, but maybe it's not the obvious for some people, but it's um, counselors who are in recovery who relapse. Now, it's one thing to be a counselor in recovery and to, from an employment point of view, Mm -hmm. you relapse and my hand dropping quotations, no harm, no foul to the clientele. Sure. Why I sure. say that is, is because you, you know, we found out you came to us, however it went down, you didn't come on the property. Yeah, there the was influence. no impact to the environment. Right. Okay. Uh, clients will ultimately get over your abrupt departure and move on to part of life. Okay. Um, but we've had histor- in, in our history, okay, um, client uh, counselors who have worked, mm-hmm. I mean, and have been actively using while they're working, mm-hmm. okay. So that's one. So they're actively using. Then we've had counselors who have, uh, while while working as a counselor, used with clients. Existing clients and former clients, okay? Um, So to me, ultimately, because of the business that we're in, this is what we're here for, right? To help people get into recovery, okay? Mm -hmm. This is like how we have cardinal rules. This is like the cardinal sin. This is like the ultimate. Sure. Okay? Uh, When the correct thing to to do is, even if you have relapsed, okay, is to do what we described. The first thing is that, no, at the very least, I do no harm to the clients. Right. Okay. I've harmed myself. I need to go and get my arrest this, this thing, take care of it, whatever the case may be. But when you don't do that, but instead you bring it into the community, bring it into the program, okay, and then take it, excuse me, another step and pull clients into it and then ultimately out of it, i.e. out of the therapeutic environment, out of the program. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, like whatever the, the, the most heinous crime in society, that's the most <laughs> yeah, heinous yeah, yeah, crime yeah. you can commit in the recovery community. And, right. and, and you know, in 40 years, 50 years, whatever it is, you know, it's happened. Sure. Um, and again, it's been very devastating to um, the clients that were dragged into into it. 
Now, of course, I don't recall, and you can correct me, but I don't, I don't recall this ever happening on the adolescent side. Um, I know there was boundary violations in terms of hanging out and, 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 and other things, but I don't believe that ever happened. But I know it did happen on the adult side mm-hmm. in, in New York and in, in California. Um, man, it happened with male, male and female clients. Yeah. Um, and again, we, I don't know, just weirdly, pre- pre- predominantly male counselors. And, yeah. you, and you and I are male, so I'm not male bashing here. I'm just saying it's just for, no, what, for whatever reason. Historically um, what it's proven to be. Yeah. Um, and it's not that um, females were not represented in the counseling field. Right, right. Um, they are represented. Um, they're not represented well in treat- in, as clients in treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, they're underrepresented there. But um, they're just throughout just my own walking about in the world – there are many females in the field. Yeah. Um, if you recall, there was a time when we were like begging. We were like, yeah, we need we males rejecting sex. females because we were looking for. We needed male role models. Yeah. You know, for for yeah. the young guys and for the you know. I recall. Yeah. So. <clears throat> it's one thing when you know when clients relapse, we deal with that, we work with that, and we trying to arrest that and regroup and, 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 and move forward. Um, when a, when a counselor relapses, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my story. I don't know if he relapsed, but when I, I was a two month member of the family in Swan Lake mm-hmm. and they called a house meeting and the director came down and there was a counselor there at the time by the name of Eugene Thomas. And the director announced that Eugene Thomas was no longer working for Daytop, effective immediately. Now, up until that time, I had never, ever, myself, personally gone to a funeral, okay? I've only seen them on, you know, on television or in comedies sure. and how the people react and so on and so forth. No exaggeration. The response was like a funeral in terms of... The, the shrieks and the crying and the uh, – it, it was like the gentleman passed away. Mm-hmm. And I was looking around because I w- I, it shocked me. And the lesson that I immediately took from that was, number one, as a client, you should never be vested in a counselor. Mm-hmm. A counselor is not going to dictate whether you succeed or fail at this experience. True. So you should never put your, you know, put quote unquote all your marbles into a counselor. Mm-hmm. And it it just appeared that everyone, not everyone, but a good number of people were so invested in this person that when he was no longer there, it was like their world crashed. Mm-hmm. I only saw my counselor two times in treatment. I, I always say that. You know, you've heard me say it over the years. Only two times. Yeah. The day she did my initial interview, and some point midway when she checked in, how you doing? Yeah. She's a female female counselor, mm-hmm. Christine. So ever since I witnessed that, I've always counseled clients and counseled staff. So I counseled the client to say, 
Never hold somebody up so high that if they should misstep or relapse or something happens to them in the realm of the recovery field. In the real in, world, yeah. Right, that it crushes you. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then secondarily, big picture, no one is better than you. Just because someone is standing up in front of you sharing information, knowledge, mm-hmm. okay? It's the, the knowledge and the information that you want to take, okay, and hold on to, not the person. Because like you said, it's just, and like happens, it's just a human being that's standing there, subject to the same whims and failures and, 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 as any other human being is subject to. Right. They just happen to be the vessel through which information is being communicated right. at that given moment, right. at that moment in time, because right. the experiences that I remember that I think helped shaped me, which are probably very similar to the experiences you might remember in a very general context, remembering feeling a certain way when we had reached a certain point or mm-hmm. whatever, were communicated by human beings who may never have crossed paths but were just people at that moment in time that had information that they were passing along. Right. And that's what it is, is information. Right. It's not personal. Right. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to have our, as clients, we don't want to be in a position where we are dependent. Right. On the counselor for, <clears throat> again, our success or failure. So, Bringing it back to the, the, the counselor's role, it, it's incumbent upon me to also stress to the client that pay attention to what I'm saying. It's also my responsibility to be a role model for you to not only talk the talk but to walk the walk mm-hmm. um, and uh, be a role model. But I, I am not your I, – I am not in essence better than you. Because of where I stand. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And that's our job to get that message across so that they can say, okay, it's just a human being. And I do look at them as a role model. They're doing their thing. That's something I aspire to to yeah, be in to terms be, of yeah. how they conduct themselves and act and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, the role model part of it. The role model part of it, right. Um, take the information. Etc. Right. But if something were to happen to that person, it's not going to crush me or throw me off the the track that I'm on. Right. Okay. I might have feelings about it, which are okay, because many people split. Sure. When this guy was let go. Mm, okay? Yeah. And I was like, wow. And yeah. he was a, he was a great counselor in terms of his style and and, and what have you. I mean, if you can have 250 people playing Simon Says on a Friday night, 150 miles up in the Catskill Mountains, and, and enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Then that, you're a great communicator. Exactly. Okay? Um, not that we had any any place else to go. <laughs> <laughs> but it can't, it, that cannot be the impact. Sure. It, that can't be the impact. Um, so if I have an ounce of integrity, even in my lowest moment, and I am 
not doing what I should be doing and so on and so forth, I have to have the interest of others, you know, at hand in the role that I'm in as a counselor. And so that would mean that, you know what, people relapse, regardless of what your title is or where where you are in, in the recovery realm, mm-hmm. people relapse. Um, we don't know the reasons why. We, we we know the 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 root 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 reason, but we don't know all of the details sure. behind it. Um, and we may never know, but there's been there's you know in twenty in my twenty seven years you know I've seen many that have fallen by the wayside, and some of those that have fallen by the wayside recover come back and stay on the path, okay? We always get asked the question, you know, is re- is relapse a part of recovery? And we always say it's not written into the book that, you know, it's not written in that that has to be the case. <laughs> not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Exactly. It's not like you got a, a mulligan on the golf course. Right. So um, the counselor in closing, cannot be a part of the problem. The client has enough to deal with with their own stuff that they bring to the table, mm-hmm. walking in the door. So they certainly don't need any of my stuff, any of your stuff, any of the other's stuff. So we have, we, we have to be responsible in that regard. So if we ever find out that the council is a part of the problem, people have to step in. I'm not just talking about in our program. I'm just saying in general. In yeah, field, generally people speaking, have to step sure. in uh, on behalf you know, of, of the client because client, mm-hmm. the client will be impacted negatively. Right. And that's another role of a counselor and employees to be a voice for the client, mm-hmm. to be an advocate for the client. And so – as as a counselor, if you are working in the field and you feel like a colleague of yours might be struggling in some of these areas, it's important in your role as an advocate or a voice for the client to step in and you know make sure that the situation gets corrected. Yep. All right, I think we've uh, beat that one up. <laughs> we we certainly did. We certainly did. But like you said at the beginning, a topic that. Needs to be touched on mm-hmm. because, you know, people tiptoe around Can't it. Can't go unspoken. Right. And especially in a field where there are a ton of paraprofessionals, mm-hmm. these things happen. Mm-hmm. These things happen, so. All right. Ready? We're at the top right. of the hour. A little bit, at the, little bit past the top of the hour. Sure. We might have an, a little extended music uh, music break. A little music break. We'll hope when I press play it's the actual song that I'm looking at. Yeah, because not... right now <laughs> jobs are on the line. Jobs <laughs> are on the line else. in this show right now, today. Couple of the music director other, and other jobs, which I'll not say. Perfect. Okay, great. So we do see we got a couple of callers on hold who want to participate in the Recovery Sport Time segment. Uh, we appreciate your patience. Hope you've enjoyed the show to this point, and we will get to you on the other side. Enjoy the music break.
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Okay, welcome back to Roadshow Recovery. This is what happens when you don't do a show every week. I keep forgetting that he's going to keep trying to preempt me <laughs> with the X Files. Drop that on him. Keep the host on his toes. <clears throat> I got to write it down on my uh, <laughs> on my mic. Leave it sticky on my mic. Um, yeah, a couple of X-Files. <clears throat> Sometimes when we're going over the X, just information, when we're going over the uh, X-Files questions, we decide, we we have a debate whether or not we're going to actually ask a particular question if we think it's not a relevant question, whatever. And and oftentimes the debate gets very rigorous because sometimes the opinion is, well, whatever is asked, we'll, we'll at, you know, they send it, we'll ask it. <clears throat> so this is one of those from Paul and Modesto. I barely do drugs. That wasn't my problem. But I rob people and stores, and I wasn't under the influence of anything when I did those crimes. Do I need help? Yes, you need help. You may not need the treatment program, but you need some help. Because if you don't stop doing that, uh, you won't end up in the treatment program. You'll end up uh, in a, I think it's a four by eight. Pushing up the daisies? Four, four by eight cell. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, John from Oakland, another one. I've been selling drugs since I was 13. And never, ever, emphasize, emphasize, never, ever used. I feel like that is the only thing I know how to ha- know. I feel like that is the only thing I know. 
how do I start to be legit? Hmm. I'm going to have to go Beretta. Remember, are you are you too young to, to know Beretta? Uh, the gun. Oh, the gun Beretta. No, I'm talking about Beretta, the old cop show. No, no, I'm unfamiliar with it. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Okay, yeah, sure. That thing's been around, though. Got to change the way you think. It's true. To come out of that life. We've had many people over the years who uh, were dealers, um, maybe dabbled a little bit, you know what I mean? But, you know, the judge said, I'm still sending you the treatment. That's right. And we've always said from day one. They're tough. No, that it doesn't matter. People who don't have alcohol or drug problems need to go through our program. But the because, dealers always... Because it's not necessarily... A, because we know it's not about alcohol or drugs. Right. Right, right. Behavior... That's just and, a symptom. Of course. Of what the issue is. But the drug dealers always used to present... They were more difficult cases to deal yeah, with. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Any Anyone who believes that they're... You know, they're, they don't have a substance abuse problem, whether real or imagined, mm-hmm. okay, always presents a difficult case. And usually, more often than not, the ones who were there and say they were primarily drug dealers as opposed to the users, mm-hmm. very smooth, very manipulative. Very, mm-hmm. And you have that gift when you're able to sell something mm-hmm. to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't mention any names, but we had one who used the gift of being able to sell but turned around and started selling cars mm-hmm. after treatment and made a ton of money. He may still be doing it. Uh, but made a ton of money doing so, so took the Are skill. You, you talking about one of our youth? Yeah. I remember. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. And took the skill and, and put it towards something where he could pick up his paycheck without having to look over his shoulder and uh, made very good money doing it. Same skill set. Addicts are the most skilled people in the world. Mm. They just need to take the same skills they use to exist in the life right. and apply it towards a, a positive and constructive right. use. All right, let's go to the phones. Who's holding the longest? John from San Mateo, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Hi, so I've, I've been uh, clean and sober for about a year and a half, and um, I've been in a recovery program for about six months, and I, I recently took a trip to visit some family out of state. And I, I faced triggers everywhere I went. I mean, I thought I was cured, but it took everything in my power and the use of all the ter- tools I've learned to abstain from using both drugs and alcohol. I stayed strong, but I feel like if I was in this environment any longer, I would have used. I mean, does that mean that uh, treatment doesn't work, or does it get easier over time? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that treatment doesn't work. <clears throat> What it means is that you're, number one, is that you're human. And that you experience, like you even named, your tr- triggers. Yeah. You, you were able to identify them as such. The question becomes, as you move forward, whether or not, because you can identify what those, because you actually experience what those triggers are in real life, yeah. 
whether or not you can now take that and put it in its proper context. Well, just because I experience something, I feel it, doesn't mean I have to react to it. Absolutely. So and when you say, will it get easier, I'll give you a, uh, a 75% yes, meaning, the reason I won't say 100%, meaning because the fact that you held strong on this first experience gives you confidence that, you know what, I can survive the triggers. I don't have to react and respond to them. Yeah. And the more that you do that, the more confidence you get, and the more that you experience it, the more confidence you get, and it's just a, like a snowball rolling downhill. matter of building up that strength to, to be able to you know, realize my I got my mind set on recovery and that's it. Correct. Okay. All right, yeah, because I was a little discouraged because, you know, I mean, I was surrounded by it. It was everywhere I looked, everywhere I turned, and, you know, a couple of thoughts in my head said, I, you know. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. Mr. Yeah. Producer, can you have him speak up a little bit? Yeah, and maybe if we jiggle the cord there, it sounds like we're getting some sort of static okay. from your line. Can you hear me, John? Yeah. Okay. See, when you say that um, you, you got to switch that from that negative view, switch it around. Yeah. You succeeded in not responding and not reacting negatively to the triggers. Yeah. That's how you have to look at it. Not that you... Oh my goodness, I had triggers. It was all around me and you know, I couldn't escape it. That's the negative reaction. The positive reaction is, wow, when I went on this trip, I had all these things going on around me and I didn't feed into it. Yeah. That's how you look at it. Okay. I guess I had just been looking at it that way because I had been in it for so long and so many years. I'm trying to get away from it, but, you know, yes, as soon it's as it pops very, up, I look it, at it from a negative point of view. Yes, you got. We, we, it takes practice, but we got to flip it around and, and look at and, and learn to pat ourselves on the back a little bit. We don't want to hurt ourselves. We don't want to pull a muscle. Yeah. Pat ourselves on the back, but you've got to acknowledge, hey, you know what? Wow, look at what I experienced, and I didn't feed into it. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. And you got to acknowledge that. Okay, maybe I'll start to uh, give myself a little pat on the back for not feeding into it. Don't pull a muscle now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> thank you. All right. All right. All right, sir. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Part of the process, changing that that that. The, that thinking uh, of how you view things through the negative lens of your past experiences and being in the moment, being in the now, and what is this experience right now? Not what it used to be and what it was five years ago. What is it right now today? Mm-hmm. And today it's that, wow, I had all this going on around me, all this negativity and all this and that triggers. Still didn't use. And I didn't feed into it. Right. So... All right, let's go to uh, Leslie from Walnut Creek. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. You're welcome. 
Um, my question is, um, I'm in my early stages of recovery, and I want to be as open and honest with my family as I can about kind of the things I went through. What is a, kind of a good way to maybe open up to your family about maybe your past drug use when you are getting into recovery, and how can that maybe help with your recovery process? Honesty is always the best way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About everything. <laughs> Honesty. <laughs> Generally speaking, yes. Yeah. There's no need to hold on to a corner of the bag. There's no need to hold on to a little piece of the story. The truth shall set you free. Yeah. Okay. What are you worried about? Um, I guess not really worried. It's just, you know, the process of being honest with yourself, too, can be a big step. So well, maybe when just the... You know, I can be. I think I can be open with a lot of, like, feel comfortable being open with some members of my family, but maybe not all of them. Where I don't, I'm, I don't want. I maybe am protecting them about some of the things. Not so much that they would judge me or they would not accept me. Just maybe trying to protect them from some of the information. I guess. Okay. Is that my would, fear. Okay. Well, that will have to be when it's that kind of a situation. You'd have to make a mm-hmm. judgment call. Yeah. Um, simultaneously, keeping in mind that you know you are the most important person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but if there are other factors in play that you know, especially if it involves minor children and things of that nature, then yes, you have to you know, right. Might have to wiggle a little bit. Right. Um, but ultimately, yeah. just generally, big picture speaking, the truth shall set you free. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. That's always a difficult um challenge yeah, when it comes yeah. time to uh when you got to let it go and be who you are and and let the truth come out. And experience the uh, the words coming out your mouth as you're taking in the body language and facial expressions and the horrifying glares and <laughs> oh my God you right. were doing all this right. stuff I didn't know it and all that you know watching the, your mother's face just you know contort and 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 your father hide his eyes and all kinds of craziness that's right that's but right. it's something that must be done. Except in rare, real you know, rare cases when you know there's minor children you know involved and things that may have happened that need to be handled in a different setting. Yeah, with, yeah, exactly. With professional assistance, etc. Presented a little differently, of course. Yeah, but um, in general, when it comes to just talk, you know, uh, spelling the beans about the life you've been living, um, and 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 just getting it out so you can start a, start anew. You don't want nothing holding you back, you know. You know that saying, and we got a lot of cliches, right? But, you know, you're as sick as your secrets, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we certainly don't want that. Um, I'm going to go to the X-Files, sir. Let's do some more X-Files. Joe C. from San Francisco, not, not one of my favorite cities. Can people get addicted to medication? <laughs> 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And depending on what it is, it could be, even if you're using it appropriately, um, there are various medications out there that because of their, their the root chemicals that are in them um, can become physiologically, uh, the body can become physiologically dependent on them. Um, but what we like to say is even in those cases, using using them responsibly and if they're improving your quality of life while you're using them responsibly, that's fine. If you slide over the line into irresponsible use and all of a sudden it's impacting your quality of life at negative, meaning that you're now starting to act like an addict, okay, mm-hmm. then we've moved over to the other side. You've crossed over. So <laughs> you got to be careful. You got to be careful. Um, so the way this – this is from Ashley, Bay Area. Can people – no, I'm sorry. Can relapse be a part of recovery? So we, we spoke about that in our – We have we several times, yeah. Touched on it. So to answer the question, the way it's worded, it can. It can, right. Okay. But it does not need to be or yeah, have, to, have be. to be. It's not written in the the guidebook. You know, <laughs> step three, here's where you now relapse. Yeah, go ahead, know. relapse, see see what happens. See how it feels and embrace the experience. No, it's not part of the, the guidebook. True. When people relapse, there's a reason behind it other than the obvious. I still like them to state the obvious. Sometimes you ask people, "So what? You know, what happened? Why'd you? Why'd you? Why'd you use?" And they'll start naming five, ten different things. And all I'm looking for really is the the root truth answer, which sure. is because I wanted to. And then from there, we'll get into why. Right, right, right. Where did that want come from? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Michael from Redwood City, what can I do to enhance my life without feeling like I need the aid of methamphetamine? Enhance my life without... <laughs> Basically, what can I do... He says use the word enhance. What, what can I do to just stay Live, clean yeah, 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 yeah. without the aid Interesting word, the way he worded it, without the aid of methamphetamine. Methamphetamine is not an aid. <laughs> I'm right. Go ahead, Mr. Producer. Uh, I mean, the way I'm interpreting what he's asking is how how he's even going to be able to enjoy his life without mm. being able to get high or using crystal meth and mm. One would hope that you have hobbies that exist or things that you enjoy outside of the drug world. And it's very possible that things that you have done, you could have had just as much fun without the drugs. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that involves your social network, you know, Mm -hmm. people doing the same things you're doing, whether that be uh, working and going out after work with your colleagues mm-hmm. or going to school and hanging out with the same people that are studying the same thing as you or um, things that you enjoy. If you enjoy watching sports, if you enjoy going out, if you enjoy being a pet owner, whatever the case may be, you know, you living the life that you want to live anyway, mm-hmm. 
without the quote-unquote aid of using some sort of mind-altering substance. Absolutely. Ray from Fremont. I'm in AA. I'm working the steps with my sponsor, but I am struggling to stay sober. What do you suggest? Well, I hope that one of the things you're doing, Ray, is communicating to your sponsor that you are, in fact, struggling. And then you and your sponsor can cut up, i.e., talk about what's act, what's actually behind the struggle. Is it environment? Is it craving, desire, need? What's behind the struggle? So there's something going on. And obviously, we don't know if you're, you know, early in your recovery attempt in the, me- in the middle, you know, back end, or et cetera. We don't know where you're at in terms of time. But usually, if you haven't relapsed yet and you can articulate and verbalize that, hey, you know what, I'm struggling right now and uh, I'm thinking about using or I, I haven't, I'm having feelings or thoughts about it. Um, if you can verbalize that in advance of actually acting it out, then that's significant progress because you're no longer just, boom, acting off your feelings or acting off your thoughts. You're first now verbalizing, hey, this is what I'm thinking and this is what I'm feeling, which gives an opportunity for people to intervene and even for you, the person who's actually saying it, to intervene. It's interesting. Sonia from San Ramon. It has been suggested that I not be in a relationship for the first year of my sobriety. There it is again, that first year thing. <laughs> but I'm married. What do I do? There's nothing to do if you're married. If you're married, you're married. <laughs> that, yeah, that's that. There you go. I'm sure she's not talking about in addition to her marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Let's go back to the phones. Let's go to uh, Darren from San Mateo. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Go ahead, ahead, sir. No, I was going to say, how can we help you? Um, I guess, uh, um, how does a person not relapse or what's the best way? Does that make any sense? That that's as plain as you can put it. (laughs) I know I, you know, first time I've done this, so I'm kind of winging it. What are you feeling? Um, well, I guess just talk about where I'm at or something or how am I feeling. Um, well, I just got into a program. Well, let uh, let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. Yes. What are you feeling in terms of your desire to either stay clean or your struggle to not use? That might be the The same question asked different ways. I don't know. Yeah. Well, 
I guess, you know, um, the craving's still there, I guess, but um, I don't know. Um, Physical cravings or uh, psychological? Well, I'm just in a bad situation, you know, rough life. Um, uh, so, I don't know, uh, I guess by the courts, maybe. I don't know, I'm just talking. No. I never did this before. Darren. Um, yes. Darren. Your your cravings, uh-huh. are they physical cravings or psychological cravings? Um, physical or psychological? Well, Meaning like, are you are you in withdrawal physically, or it's just the psychological aspect of craving? You know, the, the drugs that you used to use. I guess maybe psychological because I'm not going okay. to withdrawal anymore. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you are you new in recovery? Um, sort of new. I guess this is like my third program. Okay. But uh, you know, I never finished the other two, and I just okay. got to this program pretty recently. How long? How long have you been using, combined um, all the time? Uh, uh, just any drugs, right? Yeah. Any type. Of, uh, I would say maybe since I was about fourteen. How old are you now? I am, uh, I'll be 49 next month. What is that? 25? 25 or 35? We don't do math on this program. For, oh, yeah. <laughs> for, no, for, uh, for how long has been? Yeah, 35 well, years. 35 years, okay. I guess I'm responsible for, uh, guilty for, of that. Yeah. So are, are, you, pretty... are, you re- are, are you ready, Darren? Ready to recovery? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, I, I'm I'm ready now. I mean, I feel okay. that, I, you know, I'm at the right program. Um, you know, so, yeah. I, so, you know, I'm well, getting older me, now, so. Well, let me. Okay, you're 49. Yes. You still I'm have. Old. No, no, no. You still have a significant period of life left. Barring any unforeseen things, okay. Yeah. So let me let me just give you this little simple thing for you to keep in the forefront of your mind. Okay. okay? All you need to focus on right now is just not leaving the program that you're in. Yeah, I I don't That's intend it. to. Yeah. No matter what uh, you think, no matter how mm-hmm. you feel at any moment in time. Just yeah. don't leave. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't intend to. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, the third time will be the charm for me. Okay. So, well, um, we want to hear we want to hear back from you in a couple of weeks. Okay. You verify. That's, no, that's no problem. Okay. Is is uh, that's it for me? All right, sir. Thank you. Oh uh, no, I uh, appreciate your time, sir. All right. Bye bye. All right, you have a good night. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. He's in that uh, danger period. That's right. Of recovery. The early goings. You don't have to think about it too much. Just ride it out. Ride it out. Ride it out. Ride the wave. That's exactly what it'll be. Let's go to John from San Mateo. Welcome. Hello. Hello. 
Yeah. Can you speak up a little more, sir? Sure. You guys hear me now? How's that? Wonderful. Wonderful. How you guys doing? Good. How are you? I am doing really well. Thank you. Okay. How can we help you? My question for you guys is, uh, is relapse part of recovery, and if so, why? I'll let my uh, co-host take that one. Go ahead, sure. sir. Well, we've, we've touched on it on a number of occasions, but as we've always said, relapse does not have to be a part of one's recovery. It's kind of a cliche in the field. You hear folks say all the time, relapse is a part of recovery, and this is not uh, giving out a free pass or an excuse for folks who are entering a life of recovery to relapse at some point. Um, because that's what needs to happen if you're ever going to fully recover. Relapse can be a part of recovery because for many people, after they've gone through maybe a period of treatment or whatever it may be that has motivated them to change the way they're living and to cease the use of drugs and other substances, you may question at some point if now that you've had time away from it and you can look back at it and begin to question whether or not you're actually an addict or now that you know how to make better decisions and you've clearly proven to yourself that you can live without it, um, perhaps you're going to dabble or maybe I can just drink or maybe I can do this. Um, and it's almost a way of testing one's own place in, in recovery. So people begin to question whether or not they, they actually have an issue with it still, or maybe they were just going through a period of their life where things got out of hand, and now that things are better, maybe I'm better equipped to deal with it or handle it. And so with that questioning tends to come a relapse, and then answers are usually given after that as to whether or not you can have a drink responsibly to just pick a pick a substance and put it in very vague terms, or... Yeah. You go ahead and you relapse and things start to spiral out of control pretty rapidly, you've now answered the question that you were asking yourself as to whether or not it was possible to do something responsibly. So I believe it's in people's own questioning of where they stand on the spectrum that leads people to relapse, which is why it can be a part of recovery, but it definitely doesn't have to be. It's not, it's not necessary. If you make a decision just to say, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore, and after a handful of years, you're happy with your life, you realize your life is better than where it was before, then nothing really needs to change, even if that questioning still exists. But some people succumb to that questioning, uh, basically in a search for answers. Yeah. So it's not necessarily part or, you know, uh, necessary to recover. It's just sort of... uh expected in a sense and understood can be you know definitely understood from the perspective of a counselor treatment it's understood that people will have relapses but it's not necessarily expected right you don't want to give yourself like you're giving yourself a a, a mulligan or an out so to speak yeah that is that's kind of the main concern is uh it sounds like an out for those who aren't clear on whether or not it is a part of recovery or just something that uh, can be 
a learning each, experience. Yeah, each each person has their own individual experience in the recovery process. And for right. many people, the relapse is not a part of it. And for some, relapse is. Well. But it's certainly okay. not. Thanks for clarifying, fellas. Makes okay. a lot of sense. Okay, you're welcome. All righty, you guys have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. I was just going to say, it's certainly not written in stone. No. Um, I got a good question here from Paul from Hayward. How are we on time, sir? Oh, we're good. We have about nine minutes. Okay. I'm currently on methadone. But I am trying to recover from a heroin addiction, or as we say back around the way, heroin. <laughs> All right. Can I consider the time I'm not using heroin as clean time if I'm still on methadone? I call this a mind f-word. Question. Let me rephrase it. A mind, F word, I-N-G, question. And this is what people sometimes do to themselves. They screw themselves mentally by having this type of thought process. Okay? They've come out with a new term. It's not so new, but it's being used more, which I think is incredibly appropriate for what they actually call people who are on methadone and other types of treatment for opiates, right? Narcotic replacement therapy, NRT, mm-hmm. okay, which appropriately identifies what it is. Right. Okay. Well, when someone is on heroin, and, and doing that, more often than not, not all the time, but more often than not, they're leading a negative lifestyle. They're engaged in things that they shouldn't be doing, okay? They're putting themselves at risk, at harm, so on, so on, so on, okay? So if they're unable to stop, okay, there there's this option out there available to them to get them off of the heroin and Eliminate the other associated behaviors and things that come along with right. it that damage one's life. Okay? True. What has been missing, and this is not recent, this is going back 60 years, okay? What has been missing is really the strong component of the easing you off of this into a drug-free recovery. Right. Okay? So when the, when the person who is on methadone or the other therapies that they're using starts to think to themselves, am I clean or not clean because I'm on this? Okay? That tells me that, I'll just say the folks, in the other arena aren't doing their jobs. Because the client should never have that thought confusion, Mm -hmm. okay? 
what's the difference between that and them getting a prescription from a doctor? Because all they are getting, all it is, it is prescribed from right. a doctor. Right. Okay. Um, and again, I'm only talking about the person who, so they're getting the prescription from the doctor and it's having the impact that it was designed to have. That's right. Okay. Not the people that are doing it and also still using and or selling it. And, you know, just being uh, nefarious and and, yeah, and, and still and shady kind of and being active in your own addiction. Exactly. Still still uh, an addict in, in action and thought and what have you. So if you have removed yourself from that and, and you're and you're and you're now being productive in your life. OK. And the only thing that remains is that you are on this narcotic replacement therapy. OK. The only question I ask is, where are you at in that process? Are you going to be a 15, 20-year person, or are you in a process by which you are easing, weaning, and the ultimate goal is that I'm going to be off of this mm-hmm. and be totally drug-free? If the answer is yes, then I say don't worry yourself with whether or not because I'm on this, am I still clean? Because there's more to the definition of being clean than not using illicit drugs. Mm-hmm. It's everything else that comes with it. You, he- you heard the expression, a dry drunk. Yes, of course. Okay. There are many dry addicts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So specifically, Paul, to answer your question, if you're not in the life and you're addressing your addiction through narcotic replacement therapy, to me... You're cleaning your act up. That's exactly right. Because it's not the drug itself, as we've stated on the show before. It's a lifestyle change, a decision that you're going to start living more responsibly, living as a better person. And if this is a bridge to get to there, and that's sincerely your goal, then it's no different than having your wisdom teeth and taking Vicodin per prescribed afterwards to get through the pain. Somebody putting the nicotine patch on to, right, to wean right. themselves off of, uh, cigarettes. Um, I don't know what they do for alcoholics. <laughs> <laughs> old turkey. Did you say old turkey? No, no, no. <laughs> uh, so... All right. How, do we have enough time? You, you, oh, it'll be it'll be unscreened for the three, two, five, and you got about two minutes, so they'd have to go quick. Okay. All right. Welcome to the show. Can we have your first name and hometown, please? Uh, yeah, my name is Michael, and I'm from Mupitas. Hi, Michael. How can we help you? Yeah, I, I, my question was, how do I know I need recovery? If you're out there using drugs and getting involved in negative things. Well, you see, because I'm not, I'm in a program currently, and uh, I, I'm here court-mandated because for alcohol use, and uh, I'm, I'm actually here on a DUI, so I'm kind of like questioning if I even need recovery or not. I mean, I know I drink a little excessively at times, but I, I just don't know really if this is for me or not. You've you've actually answered your own question. Whether whether or not you, when you say, "Well, I drink excessively at times," well, that tells me that you don't have self control, uh-huh. and it's very hard to have self control once once you actually start drinking. That's a known fact when it comes to alcohol. Right. But 
if you're at the if you're at a stage where you're questioning whether or not, hey, is this for me? Is this something that I need to do or or should be doing? I could already tell you how that's going to end up. So you have to look deep within yourself and determine what is it that you want, and whether or not this is the avenue for me to achieve it. Right. That's the question you first have to answer. Okay. Okay. So you kind of just answered my question there. Yeah. So basically, I would have to do all. I really would have to do is like discipline myself to to just not drink so much because I know there's people no, no, out there no, no, that no, 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 no. That's not what I said. I said you have to just answer that question within yourself. And when you answer that question, it'll dictate what you do. Okay. All right. Uh huh. I get what All right. Producer, All right. Thank you. Ready to cut me off. Thank you. Trying to have the cake and eat it too. It's what we all try to do. All right. That's a natural, naturally driven to do such a thing. Okay, just before we close real quick, I just want to say this the, this close is going to determine whether or not someone keeps their job. I just wanted to mention that real quick. All right, that's it. Uh, okay, we would like to thank everybody for their ongoing support, those who called in just to enjoy the show, as well as those who called in to participate in the Recovery Support Time segment, everybody who continues to listen via the podcast or call in to give their support, write in, listen, everything that you guys are doing. We appreciate all of it. Uh, We will be back on the air two weeks from now, and we look forward to speaking to everybody then about a different show topic in the interim. If you guys would like to still listen to the show next week when we're not on, again, we have a full library of podcasts available on iTunes or the website that you can access at your own will. Uh, With that said, we wish everybody a safe couple of weeks, and we will catch you all two weeks from now.
that's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Some days, some days,